Hey everybody, if you are a writer or an aspiring writer, or if you just love literature, I have a book for you. It's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories. It is the long-awaited craft book by Steve Almond, based on three decades of his writing career, a career that has featured at turns depression, failure, anxiety, self-loathing, despair, self-doubt, loss of faith, delusions of grandeur, and the occasional triumph. It's a book about the writing life. Steve Almond has done it. He has embraced it, the full catastrophe, and he has lived to tell about it. The Boston Globe says, quote, this isn't just a book about writing, it's a book about honesty. And Richard Russo calls it, quote, one of the best books on writing I've ever read. It's also the funniest by a country mile. Once again, it's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories by Steve Almond, available from Zando. Go get your copy right now, wherever you buy books. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hey everybody, how are you? Welcome to the program. This is The Other People Show. I'm Brad Listy. I'm in Los Angeles. It's good to be with you. Thank you for listening. I hope you're doing all right wherever you happen to be. Don't forget to subscribe to The Other People Podcast wherever you listen. You can also subscribe on YouTube. Today on the program, my guest is Ivy Pakoda, author of a new novel called Sing Her Down. I was I wrote the last part, then I was like, I want to figure out how these women get to this point. That's all I knew. I knew that I wanted this sort of standoff on Western. That's, you know, not giving anything away. I wanted this sort of Wild West standoff on Western. And then I knew that these women were going to be in prison. And then I had to figure out how to get them there. And I just had a few, few ideas. The plotting of it was, how do we get them to this point? Like, what would it take for these two women to wind up in that situation? And that was the question I kept asking myself. All right, that was Ivy Pakoda. Her new novel is called Sing Her Down. It publishes this week, available from MCD Books, a division of Farrar, Strauss, and Giroux. Singer Down reads like an incantation. It's a very musical book. This is a novel that really moves. It is a contemporary Western set primarily in Los Angeles. It is a crime story. It is about a pursuit. It is a story about women, two women in particular, and what happens to them as they serve time in prison and what happens when they get out. This is also very much, to me anyway, a pandemic novel, a book that speaks to the era that we just lived through and in some ways continue to live through. But it does this without being too, like, on the nose about it. I'm very excited to welcome Ivy Pakoda back onto the show. 
This is her second time on the Other People podcast. We first spoke all the way back in November of 2017 in episode 495. Ivy Pakoda is the author of the critically acclaimed novels Wonder Valley, Visitation Street, and These Women. She won the 2018 Strand Critics Award for Best Novel and the Prix-Page America in France. She has also been a finalist for the Los Angeles Times Book Prize, the Edgar Award, the McCavity Award, and the International Thriller Writers Award. Her writing has appeared in the New York Times, the Wall Street Journal, and the LA Times, among other publications. I'm very excited to have Ivy on the show today and to get to share this conversation with you. So here she is, ladies and gentlemen. This is Ivy Pakoda, and her new novel, once again, is called Sing Her Down. I started it uh, in September of 2020, so sort of at the height of the pandemic when we realized sort of that it wasn't going away and school wasn't going back and people weren't going back to work in person. So it came out of that period. Okay. So whenever I speak with authors on this show who write crime fiction, uh, I think of like Todd Goldberg, like a gregarious kind of goofy guy. Mm -hmm. And yet you read his books and you're like, holy shit, (laughs) this is like twisted, you know? And I, I was reading this book and thinking like, wow, I've met Ivy. Like she's mild mannered super smart, Mm -hmm. doesn't seem to uh, have lived a life of crime in her youth, though maybe I'm wrong. (laughs) Uh, I'm always wondering as I'm reading, like, where does this come from? Where do (laughs) Dios Mary Sandoval and, uh, you know, Florence Baum come from? Do you have any sense of of where that originated for you? It's funny. Todd's one of my closest friends and we are always goofing around, even like late last night on text. And you would, you'd be very surprised about what we write if you read our text messages because they're super funny and upbeat. So yeah, I mean, I sort of know where these women come from. I think sometimes it's hard to, you know, there's so many books about female anger and female rage and female, you know, disempowerment, but a lot of times that's telescoped into a domestic setting and it's sort of not original for me or it's sort of very restrained. And I think I really wanted to sort of explore like the depths of female frustration and anger. And the best way to do that was to really elevate it into criminality. I think that we don't allow women in real life and in fiction, the power of their own passion And so in order for me to really, you know, exemplify that, I had to make these women particularly violent. And I really wanted to write a book about violent women. That was the goal. So, you know, it came from, they came from the idea of wanting to write about violence. And I have this theory that, you know, we are, I mean, it's probably not valid, but it's just the way I think, you know, we're all one step away from doing something really incredibly dangerous in our lives, just whether it's, you know, carelessly having an extra drink and driving the car or, you know, jostling someone in the subway and pushing them into the tracks. I mean, not even intentional, but, you know, I think that violence is pretty tangible in ways that people don't really consider. So I don't really think it's that extreme to create violent characters because I just think it's something that we're all capable of whether or not we do it, you know. Yeah. And it is, as you say, like closer than we might acknowledge. Yeah. You th- like thinking about like 
I always, whenever I'm on the, uh, you know, in a subway station, I'm always the guy who's like way back against the yeah, wall. I'm like, it's not going to be me. Whenever no. this, like, you know, some crazy person decides to yeah. <laughs> off somebody, I don't understand these people standing right up there at the line. That's like, nuts. Yeah. But... What, what's going to get them? <laughs> you know, like... Right. Yeah. Maybe you get like a better seat or yeah. something. I don't know. But, you know, as I was reading, another thing that I was, was occurring to me is that I have not, and, you know, I haven't read everything, obviously, but I have not seen stories where women are perpetrators of violence very often. Yeah, I mean, I that, was, that's I was kind true. of searching my brain. I couldn't think of one. Well, I mean, there are ones, you know, you will see it in sort of different aspects of crime fiction, like domestic violence and domestic drama and psychological thriller where a woman's had enough or, you know, has amnesia and killed a bunch of people that she doesn't remember or, you know, you see it in Gillian Flynn's books, but it doesn't feel, and I really like Gillian Flynn, but it doesn't feel real to me. Those don't feel like really good reasons to be violent. They feel like um, book reasons or, you know, sensational reasons. And I realized that I too hadn't read a lot about violent women, but I realized when I had, their violence was always excused by some action perpetrated upon them by a man. So when we talk about violent women, we are very comfortable with their violence if it's like Thelma and Louise who have been wronged by their husbands or, um, you know, Eileen Wuornos, who's a, not a fictional character, is a real person, you know, who is a prostitute who is abused or, you know, a, like a woman in sort of a psychological thriller who has a vendetta against some thing that happened to her in her past that caused a split personality and the split personality is off doing like horrific deeds. But meanwhile, she's at home making cake. <laughs> um, it's like, I've read that book like three times, you know, there's a lot, that book exists and it keeps coming out and, you know, I get a lot of pushback like, oh yeah, but you get violent women. I said, yeah, but that's not real, you know, and it, you don't have men, you know, when we read about violent men, we don't have these excuses for them as much. So I really wanted to write a book that was about violent women. And like, I wanted to write it like Cormac McCarthy might write about violent men. You know, we don't, he doesn't really excuse their behavior. He just lets them go for it, you know? So that's yeah I, I you haven't read it because i don't think it's really been written well and you bring up cormac mccarthy and you like sort of allude to i think the prose style and this kind of hard-boiled i don't know how to describe it even but one thing i was thinking uh about your novel is how kinetic it is like this is a novel that really moves and a lot of the sentences are short i noticed yeah. Like I, I kind of hate talking about prose. It makes me feel gross or something. It was like it's very muscular. You know? I know. <laughs> there's a limited there's a limited vocabulary for how to discuss this stuff. But gritty. this is a propulsive novel. It's pared down, it's gritty. Mm -hmm. so they and it uh is beautifully detailed. There's like wonderful descriptions and yet you don't get bogged down in them. Mm -hmm. You know, I guess that's a hallmark of a, a crime novel and writing thrillers or whatever um but it definitely stands out in this book i don't know where the shorter sentences came from i think it's i think it suits the material you know and these women in the book you know they are articulate but they're sort of confined and i guess if i had to put my literary analysis hat on which i kind of don't want to do because i feel the same way about talking about prose that they're sort of the the sentences are short and constrained because their lives and their experiences are short and constrained and they don't really have the time to sort of relax and well they do have time to relax and ruminate but like things are pretty 
frenetic for them. And so I think the pose has that kind of rat-a-tat style that sort of reflects what's going on in the book. And there are places where it does flatten out a little bit more and is a little looser, but you know, they're harder women. So they have harder edge pros, you know, that that's basically it. Yeah. And you know, you're, you're exploring female rage. And I think one of the like smart things that you do in this book is you make this exploration like prismatic. You have the two adversaries. Mm -hmm. You have Florence Baum, who is a, girl from a rich family in Hancock Park who sort of goes off the rails and has some difficult experiences in her youth that I think set her onto her difficult trajectory. She is sexually abused by a friend's father. I hope I'm not spoiling too much, but I think not that's really. so central to how how she develops. And then you have Dios Mary Sandoval, who is a bit more opaque as a character, and I think intentionally, because you know, you talk about rage, you talk about human darkness. I feel like anyway, as a reader that Dios Mary Sandoval sort of embodies the mystery of why people do evil shit. Yeah. <laughs> like for we sure. always, we always want those explanations. And with her, it's just bad seed. You're not getting one with her. And actually with Florida, I don't think you are either. You know, she was sexually abused by her friend's father, but as she sees it, like she was a willing participant in that activity. And, you know, there's part of her that's sort of, I mean, it's sort of horrific to say, but kind of enjoyed that because, you know, she felt powerful and she felt in control and she felt superior to her friend. So those experiences shaped her, but she also is a willing participant in them and chases them as opposed to them forming her. So that's sort of what I was playing with there. I mean, her trajectory towards the things she did in her life is a little more traditional, you know, like the snowball effect of like bad decisions, but like she made those bad decisions. She was not like a tumbleweed that got buffeted around. And she was a willing participant in a lot of her bad decisions and own, doesn't own them, but sort of chase them. And, but Dios is definitely, as you say, opaque, like there's no explanation. And it was really hard to write because I kept wanting to give it an explanation. I was like, no, you can't do that. Like, that's the whole point. You cannot justify why she is the way she is. She's a great villain. Mm -hmm. And she's like, she's got that relentlessness, kind of like a horror monster mm -hmm. you know you know she's coming you know she's lurking in the shadows somehow she knows exactly where she, <laughs> florida yeah. is and all the time <laughs> all the time yeah. all the time and has that sort of like like street smarts and intelligence that you often see in skilled criminals yeah and had the story been limited to this relationship and even you could add case if i'm pronouncing yes. that right uh, correctly mm -hmm. this this other woman in prison with uh you know florida and dios mary who is kind of commenting uh in certain chapters on what's happening in the narrative and what's happened between these two women if it had been limited to just that group of incarcerated women or formerly incarcerated women, I think it would have been missing what you deliver with Detective Lobos, yeah. who is, um, you know, the cop who's trying to find these women mm -hmm. and trying to tease out what's actually happening. And very shrewdly, Detective Lobos is a victim of domestic violence 
who has like a kind of a confidence problem and is trying to work through the trauma of her ex-husband's abuse. Yeah, I mean, it's horrific for her, not the abuse so much as the fact that it may, well, the abuse is definitely horrific, but like her confidence problem is that, you know, she's a cop and it's hard to be a female cop and she's quite short. And so she's diminutive and that's a big strike against her. You know, it's a reason for her to be teased in the force. And, you know, she's horrified by what her husband has done to her. He's not horrifyingly violent. He's not, he's aggressive and, you know, he's not sexually or he only, he, physically assaults her once and it's not particularly dangerous but it's completely demoralizing and destabilizing because she feels this is another way that she if someone found out that she can't keep control in her own home well how are they going to let her be a cop on the street you know and i really wanted to play with the idea that you know the overflow of the personal into the professional and you know she's just mortified and because she's a woman and what i wanted to do with her character is create a sort of woman that if you can't relate to Dios and Florida, which I think people should be able to in a certain respect, there must be a little bit of, they are, they have some more like conventional aspects of their character. If you can't relate to them and that's okay, um, you can relate to Lobos. You can relate to the way she's being mistreated at work or her perceived mistreatment at work because she is very prickly about it and she's not always entirely right about things that are being said to her or the way her partner, this pretty even keeled guy, is approaching the case. She has her hackles up, but she has her hackles up because she's a woman in a man's world and she's a woman who's just been scolded and put down and the victim of like all women, I think of just like merciless, relentless teasing that is supposed to be a joke, but it's really not like I, my whole life I've lived this way, you know, like, you know, if you're a woman and you like, like hit the curb while you're parking, people will like call you out for it. It's like, everybody does that. You know, I saw some meme on the internet on International Women's Day that was like the hubcap of a car that was scraped. And it was like, happy International Women's Day. And I was like, Jesus, like, do only women scrape the hubcap of the car? You know, it's just one of these things. My hubcaps, my hubcaps are completely ruined. I hit the curb all the time. Right. <laughs> but no one's calling you out for it. And like, you know, I made one mistake driving with my ex-husband and a really good friend of mine. Um, I didn't see a median and I drove over it. You know, it was dark and we're the country road in San Diego County. And they still talk about it to this day. But I don't talk about any of the countless other times like they might have made a driving error so there's just this i feel open season on women's uh mistakes and women's failures and lobos is emblematic of that and you know i don't care if you're a cop or a doctor or you know a school teacher or whatever like some a woman will find something in that character to relate to and the domestic abuse or domestic violence or an emotional abuse is just sort of a little bit of a, a goad like it I it's like a um it pushes that further so like you know everything's supposed to be great women are supposed to be able to manage their home lives and they're supposed to be able to manage their work lives but like she is not managing either one particularly well and she is so angry about it as she should be you know it just we meet her at the furthest out point of this rage like she's done the right thing she's moved out but she can't get away from him. You know, it's still, she has not put this problem to rest and it's really interfering with her life. Yeah, we're stalking her. He is stalking her. And that somehow is her fault in her mind because she can't deal with it. And like, 
I feel the same way. Like I've had a lot of issues in my life, you know, with men or whatever. And you're like, did I not like give him, you know, why is it my job to give this dude the message that he shouldn't be harassing me or that like, stop calling me and asking me out. Like it's starting to get uncomfortable, you know? And why is it my job to do that? And I feel like that's a really dumb light example of that. Like, you know, the guy who calls too many times, but there is a certain level of stalking in that. And, you know, I hope that anyone who reads it's like, oh yeah, like Lobos is having a much more exaggerated version of I don't want to go out to coffee with you no matter what you say, <laughs> you know. No, yeah, no matter how many times you no like, slide times. into my DMs. Exactly. <laughs> hey everybody, if you are a writer or an aspiring writer or if you just love literature, I have a book for you. It's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow a DIY manual for the construction of stories. It is the long-awaited craft book by Steve Almond, based on three decades of his writing career, a career that has featured at turns depression, failure, anxiety, self-loathing, despair, self-doubt, loss of faith, delusions of grandeur, and the occasional triumph. It's a book about the writing life. Steve Almond has done it. He has embraced it, the full catastrophe, and he has lived to tell about it. The Boston Globe says, quote, this isn't just a book about writing, it's a book about honesty. And Richard Russo calls it, quote, one of the best books on writing I've ever read. It's also the funniest by a country mile. Once again, it's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories by Steve Almond, available from Zando. Go get your copy right now, wherever you buy books. Uh, you know, another thing about this book is that, and as we talked, we talked about this at the beginning is that it's set during the pandemic, which adds a dimension, you know, it's great. These little flourishes of like prisoners coughing, the prisoners being nervous about the virus spreading within the prison walls, which I thought about that actually, as the pandemic was unfolding, one of the worst places to be at the peak, like pre-vaccine when people were dropping dead and nobody quite knew exactly what was Mm -hmm. going on to be incarcerated would be a particularly tough environment for communicable disease. And then on top of that, this novel is set against the backdrop of the George Floyd murder and the George Floyd protests. And what was crazy for me as a fellow Los Angelino was reading these descriptions of the militarized city Mm -hmm. and the security that uh, appeared in Los Angeles kind of overnight tanks rolling down the street, National Guard soldiers posted on corners. Mm-hmm. I maybe had blocked this out. I had sort of like like put that into the the fog of my memory and I was like, "Oh yeah, like that was fucking crazy." And it, it makes perfect sense to me that somebody with your particular imagination and tendency toward dark narratives <laughs> would be like, "That's going into my book." Well, yeah, I mean, so it's funny. I, you know, I was pretty much locked up at home. I had, my daughter is now eight. So she was five at this time when I was writing this. Can that be right? Six and uh, five, five and six. And I, you know, I got, she was in school online. I would get like an hour and a half free a day. And I'd walk roughly from where I used to live pretty much up to your neighborhood. Cause I kind of vaguely remember where you live. And I remember my old neighborhood. I remember being in this kind of residential neighborhood with freestanding like clapboard houses and just 
I was on the phone with my therapist and she was over in West Hollywood where she lives and neither of us could hear each other because of the helicopters. And I was like, this is so terrifying because we're already in this lockdown. Like we're all afraid of whatever, you know, it was, you know, whatever COVID manifestation was going on then and, you know, whatever. And then suddenly there's this threat from above with the helicopters. And I just remember thinking this is so, I mean, I have never been in a war zone. I don't plan to go to a war zone, but I had this feeling like, you know, the anxiety of the noise is as terrifying as the threat of the violence and just feeling this sort of oppression. And yeah. And those days just felt almost surreal to me. And also there was this constant chatter in the background that the protests were going to just be a super spreader event. And like people, you know, COVID was going to go crazy after the protests, which turned out not to be the case. And I always wonder why they didn't look at that as like really good data point. But, um, but I just was completely taken aback by those days as some of the strangest thing I've ever lived through. And the other thing was like this sort of affluent TV writers and producers I knew, and I mean, super affluent from my old life as a married person, they were leaving the city. And I was like, you have to be fucking kidding me. Like, you know, like we're fleeing our homes in Beverly Hills. We're going to Ojai and to Malibu and to, um, you know, Montecito. And I just thought, this is crazy. Like, this is not the world that we live in. You know, what's going to happen to you? And it just felt like it was so completely surreal that time on top of a pandemic. So yeah, I really wanted to write about it. And I didn't know that that's the time period that this book was set in until they got to LA. And I thought, okay, yeah, it has to be, it has to be more intense. It just, it presented itself. It is crazy how rich people were like, you know, we're just going to try a year in Sun Valley. <laughs> yeah. Or like, and it's like, oh, it must be nice to just be able to like, yeah, be like, yeah we're just going to go buy a house in Sun yeah. Valley or rent some house for like $25,000 a month. And and also you know, just the, get out of here. And this idea that even just during the, those protests that like the the protest was somehow not about George Floyd. It was about like raiding like the producer of a sitcom's house up in like, you know, Brentwood. I don't really think that was the point of the protest. But, you know, people can really write themselves into any story that they feel like they want to be the center of. So like, you know you know, NBC producers are fleeing in droves because they think that, you know, this is what the George Floyd protest was about. This is a complete sidebar. It is a one sentence in my book, this, <laughs> that this is addressed, that particular aspect, but it is something that makes me absolutely crazy. And I lost respect for a lot of people because like, I feel like there's this like, Okay, this is totally off topic. That's um, all right. That's yeah, all right. I know. This is That's, what this show is. I love is. your podcast because it's like, you know, <laughs> I feel like there's this huge issue with politics in America now where the minute, the, you know, obviously Trump had his town hall recently and then you hear that every single a certain type of person that I know says the minute Trump is elected, we're moving to Montreal. We're immigrating to Portugal. It's always a nice place. Like no one's moving to like, I don't know somewhere else, you know, like we're moving to like Montreal or Portugal or, you know, the coast of the Southern France. And I'm like, well, that's really great. I mean, what about the people who can't afford to do that? The people who are actually like worse affected by the policies that are you, you're, you're just going to leave and not help. It makes me bananas. Like, I mean, I understand people leaving because they feel the rights are going to be oppressed. Like if you, 
during a Muslim van or something and your your children are Muslim or you're a Muslim. That I understand. Like you're fearing for your safety. But if you don't like what's going on, but you're in the position to help and you leave, like please never talk to me again or talk about leaving. Like I don't <laughs> want to be your friend. I'm very serious. Yeah. yeah. It's a... Uh... It's it's like a it's a massive flex of privilege. It's a massive flex of privilege and it's a massive, you know, shirking of responsibility. You know, we have the we have the possibility to help it any way we can. And like the other thing is like the people who say these things are the people who are not really affected. They live in California or New York, you know. I completely understand like if you have a trans kid or if you, you know, are in, in a minority group that feels oppressed or whatever, um, that's completely different. But like, you know, people saying, oh, I just can't take it, you know. Okay, well, good for you. Or <laughs> maybe you should yeah, maybe enjoy you should your, go. enjoy your time and enjoy your time in Portos or yeah, whatever. Totally. <laughs> yeah, totally. Yeah, perfect. Uh, yeah. Yeah. So I'll tell you, this book of yours made me feel a sense of menace hmm. all around me like here in Los Angeles, like the Los Angeles as you imagine it and the Los Angeles, like the parts of Los Angeles that you are depicting, particularly downtown Skid Row. I know you teach mm-hmm. on Skid Row. I like do. You spend time down there. Mm-hmm. So you're familiar with it in a personal way. And I could kind of feel that in the writing, but the police choppers, the protests, the tanks rolling down the street, the homeless on homeless crime, the possibility of somebody pulling a knife or a gun like that's all over these pages Mm -hmm. and obviously you know in a crime novel you want to kind of ratchet that stuff up Mm -hmm. but it definitely (laughs) made me it doesn't reconsider where i live (laughs) it's funny i live in like the most bucolic part of los angeles now i live in village green which is a giant park in south la that's like we don't even have cars you know and kids can play out after dark until eight o'clock and also i don't really feel (laughs) unsafe in skid row pretty i mean i know there are safety issues i'm very comfortable down there i sort of I imagine that I know how to handle myself. I imagine I know how to handle somebody who, after 14 years, is having a bad day. Though, of course, I don't. But, you know, the fear I wanted to sort of create in the book is sort of the fear I was probably just running my mouth about a second ago, which is these people who kind of ignore certain sections of Los Angeles because it's convenient and possible for them to do so. And it's the fear of the unknown You know, I lived in the arts district uh, for years and before it was crazy gentrified, it was like mildly gentrified. And I would have friends come from like the West Side or Hancock Park and visit me. And they were just like, where do you live? And this is terrifying. And how do you walk around? And do you feel like comfortable at night? I was like, well, yeah, like it's a city. It's like Brooklyn. It's like Williamsburg. It's like Queens, you know? And, and you are a New Yorker. You I are a New am Yorker. a New Yorker. Yeah. yeah. Um, I'm a definite New Yorker. But I just feel that like LA is so cloistered and sequestered neighborhood to neighborhood that, you know, the fear is sort of the fear of the unknown and people reacting to that. And Florida herself is from Hancock Park. And, you know, she's been all over and she likes to drive her car or she did before she was incarcerated. But, you know, it is sort of this like her friends are afraid of all the places she would go. Like, um, you know, she. So I, I, I'm just trying to capture that sort of fear of the you know unknown city. Do I believe that L.A. is a violent place? No, not really. Do I believe it has the potential of violence? Sure. Everywhere it does, you know. Um, well, but I think the, the feeling that it gave me 
like not in effective sense, but in a more realistic sense is that it made me realize or kind of re-realize how fragile like the human society is and the norms that sort of hold things together, especially oh, sure. a place this big with so many people and so many different competing interests and ethnicities and agendas. Sure. It's sort of amazing that any place like this functions at all. Well, and yet yeah. it does. And it, but I, th- I feel like maybe the bonds that hold it together are not as strong as we might like to think. Oh, hell no, they're not. I mean, like, you know, just the phrase shelter at home or safer at home, whatever it was, both shelter in place, <laughs> shelter, shelter in, in place, place yeah. yeah, safer at home. Like when you're unhoused or you live in a giant apartment complex, you know, safer at home means something completely different than if you live like as I was at that point in like a five bedroom house in West Adams in like, you know, and they just, you know, there was these blanket statements of how we were all going to handle the pandemic. But like LA has the largest unhoused community like in the world, basically. And, um, you know, but the mandate was the same, regardless of whether you lived in, you know, the Pacific Palisades or in Skid Row. And I was sort of taken by that as someone who works in Skid Row, what that meant. And the homeless sprawl during the pandemic became absolutely massive you know there was this sort of city that was layered on top of the city like i walked constantly it was my big you know my big outing every day i would walk one and a half to two hours and i think it was on like ken Marin sixth there were these it's in the book that's where i put it in the book i'm trying to remember what this actually where it is um there were these freestanding shelters like these people had built houses and some were made out of plywood and they were each built around a lamppost or um a street sign and there were like really houses and there was cook stoves and you know roofs and siding and i thought wow this is so intense you know and so different and there's and this is going to have to all come down after the pandemic i mean the way unhoused homelessness changed you would just see it was they weren't just encampments they were like little living rooms set up on the street and i just was always sort of interested in whether how like you know sh- safer at home was reflected in these creation of like these ad hoc homes, you know, and whether that was yeah. somehow coincidental. It is kind of, yeah, it's, it's pretty, in, it's pretty crazy. Mm-hmm. The sheer numbers in Los Angeles of unhoused people and the scale of that problem and trying to wrap mm-hmm. your head around it. I think everybody in Los Angeles who looks at it and wants to see it change sits around at some point and tries to kind of like puzzle over what the answer is. Right. I, I feel like that's just a feature of life here and I don't know what the answer is. I mean, it just seems so multi multifaceted. It's not just like, Oh, there's a housing issue. It's like, well, there's also mental health. Mm -hmm. There's also, I mean, it's endless. So I don't, I don't envy the people who are tasked with trying to no. solve it. No, not at all. And then like, it's not enough to build supportive housing. It's not enough to build housing. The housing has to be supportive housing because put someone who's never really been able to function living in an apartment before in an apartment without the way to access the services they need to maintain that apartment, like their SS, their SSI and like how you apply for things. And like, you know, but well, in order to do that, you have to know how to use a computer. And it's like, I mean, I just remember this lovely guy who I just saw the other day who was in one of my first Skid Row workshops. He had to prove this in order to get this discounted or free bus pass. 
to ride public transportation, he had to prove two things. One, that he was disabled enough that he required the bus pass, but two, that he wasn't too disabled that he was going to cause a disturbance on the bus. And he, um, he doesn't have a physical disability. He has an emotional disability. He grew up in like downtown LA. Uh, he's fantastic. A great writer too. And the test he had to do was so incredibly bizarre and difficult. First you have to register and then you have to go to this place and you get all this paperwork. And then they like have this, like they create a bus and you have to like show that you're capable of like swiping your card and sitting on the bus. But just to get to that point was like a mountain of paperwork. And I just think it's so unfair. You know, it's so unfair. All the hoops, like being homeless is a mound of paperwork. Like that's, and it's like, and who is probably less equipped financially physically or just like with the tools to do a bunch of paperwork as someone who's wound up without a house. So anyway, that's another story. No, I get it. Yeah. I get it. I mean, on a, on a related note, I mm -hmm. guess, but like yeah. I have a disabled child and like just to apply for accessible parking placards, Ugh. you would not believe the oh, hoops sure. that you have to jump through right. and the paperwork and the doctors and all this stuff. And it's like, Things should be easier yes, for families who exactly. are grappling with this. And it's actually harder. <laughs> yes, I know. Yeah. So I want to talk to you about Olympic and Western. Okay. This is another like Los Angeles question for people who are not from Los Angeles or don't have context. Can you just describe the intersection of Olympic and Western? Because it figures prominently into your novel. Sure. And... It's a major intersection here in town, but I want to <laughs> know why it captured your imagination. <laughs> well, I, again, lived not too far. I used to live not too far away from Olympic and Western. I lived basically at Western and 15th, which is about eight blocks south of Olympic. But Olympic is sort of the first major, what is Olympic, a boulevard? I don't know. It just says Olympic on it, right? Avenue? I have no idea. Olympic West Boulevard, I think yeah, it is. Western's an avenue, that I know. Yeah. So it's an odd visual location for me because it's uphill. So if you're walking from the south, it, Western rises as it goes to Olympic. And it's sort of, or as you're coming, or as you're coming, or at least I was coming home from the north, down Western, you get there and then it sort of descends into the lower recesses of Los Angeles, like towards the 10, which is sort of a discounted and discarded area for a lot of people. Like when I, like when I moved to that area, like you couldn't get food delivered on the wrong side of the 10. It was, you know, and that wasn't that long ago. Olympic and Western is a intersection in Koreatown that has um, a couple of anchor businesses on it that interest me. There's the Koreatown Galleria, which is a giant Korean-based shopping plaza that has a supermarket in the basement and a food court at top and a lot of weird stores in the middle. And I did a lot of shopping there. Um, you know, On one side, there's a gas station that has rotating murals behind it. There's a Bank of America and a piano store. And then on the other corner is sort of, um, there's nothing there. There's a bus stop and the businesses face um, the wrong way. They face on Western, not on Olympic, but it's really wide. And it's sort of one of the first places as you go from South LA towards in the city where there's a ton of space, it's just a giant intersection. And it sort of seems to me where it's like a 
thank you for asking this question because I'm now thinking about it clearer. It feels to me sort of like a, a liminal space because a lot of people going to Hancock Park and West, you know, they they cross that way going um, west on Olympic, um, and it's sort of you know, and that that that's sort of a, it's sort of a change as you pass Western a couple blocks, you're in a different area, and then also going north, Western's like this. I find this incredibly fascinating street that sort of cuts through major areas of LA, but it's sort of, it goes to, um, it goes to Griffith Park, you know, um, through Koreatown and just off of Western or the nicer places, but it's very commercial, it's very busy. I love it. Like I, for me, like I walked around there all the time and like you would get food and, you know, shopping and groceries without having to drive, but it's just this, uh, you know, it's this very large intersection and people it just I've, i always find that like things grind to a halt there because there's always something going on but it just seems to me where koreatown fades away uh towards the west and sort of like the last i know koreatown continues a little bit further but it just seems to be like a real like you know threshold and it captured your imagination Love and it. wound up being pivotal in your yeah. story i'm wondering how early in the process like this intersection day appeared one to you day one mm-hmm. Was it the like point of Genesis or one of the points of Genesis? I wrote what became the end of the book as a prologue initially and kind of like as an exercise. I was just thinking, oh yeah, also because during the pandemic, it was such a big intersection. It was dead empty. It was really strange, you know, like little side streets that are dead empty and don't have people on them. That's probably the case right now. You know, it's like St. Andrews and eighth or whatever. Like it's probably no one standing on that corner at this moment, but the fact that no one was standing on the corner of Olympic and Western kind of blew my mind. It reminded me of, and it's probably not something to laugh about, but I happened to be in London when princess Diana died. And on the day of her funeral, my friends and I went to Piccadilly circus, which is just like mad busy. And you could sit down in the middle of Piccadilly circus or Oxford street. And I was like, this is really crazy. You know, this is totally, totally wild. And you know, the, it makes you think about a city differently. A city is still a city is a physical place, but really a city is a place that's filled with people. So it just that that intersection became emblematic of sort of the emptiness of the pandemic for me. And the fact that what happens there, which we're not going to talk about because in the book, what happens there happens there just seemed to be like the sort of ne plus ultra of something that could go down on an empty street in the pandemic. Yeah, you know, it's wild to think about being in a city this big and this populated And one thing I remember from the early days of the pandemic, when everybody really was sort of just in their houses and the streets were empty, Mm -hmm. A, I'm a cyclist. I like to ride a bike and I'm one of the crazy people who will like ride around in traffic, like Mm -hmm. two feet from a car, (laughs) even though I, you know, broke my knee cap a year ago. Uh, But I remember how wonderful it was to ride a bicycle during that time. It was glorious to get around Los Angeles without having, you know, cars everywhere. And then secondly, there was a period where wild animals started to sort of reappear. Like there were deer, mm-hmm. you know, seen not far from my house. And I was like, who sees deer around here? But they started to sort of come back and like oh, yeah. repopulate. It didn't take very long. Nope. Well, I mean, <laughs> that's know? the thing that I'm fascinated by Los Angeles is that no one should really live here. Like it feels like from all sides of this city, like nature is trying to take back what take it back like the ocean is encroaching and the desert's like getting hotter and like you know we're we're talking about 
animal, like, you know, these bobcats or whatever, wild, what are they called? Uh, mountain lions that get stuck on the wrong side of the freeway. It just seems that, like, we shouldn't live here and nature is going to come back. It's going to burn us, flood us, whatever it is going to happen. It feels like a real vanity project to live here. Like, we are just, like, sitting, waiting for the apocalypse. <laughs> well, great talking with you. <laughs> I, I got to go. <laughs> Well, I I have this like fantasy. I hope that like in the afterlife, I somehow could see the Los Angeles basin before it was developed back when indigenous peoples lived here and it was wild because it, it is a magnificent tract of land. And if you read about like the history of Southern California, like Orange County was one of the most like biodiverse and resource rich and like flooded with animals, like flooded with wildlife, like grasslands, like, like I forget what you call it. It's like maritime grassland environment or whatever, but just gorgeous. And it's very sad to me to think of how like all that's gone. Now I have to go take an antidepressant. Thanks. (laughs) (laughs) But it's just like, wow, this was such a beautiful spot and it's just paved every inch of it. And like, it would maybe soften the blow a little bit if the people who had developed this city had developed it for human beings rather than real estate developers. And this is like, my wife would be laughing at me right now because this is my like number one rant. I'm always like the real estate developers ruined this city. They didn't build it for people. There are no bike lanes. There are no, like there's not enough parks or public spaces. There's no place to sit. You know, it's it's built like like a city either. There's no, you know what I didn't under, I don't understand about that. That's a good point. And this is something that really bugs me too. Like, until the pandemic, and we're going to have to say that this changed. Why didn't people eat outdoors in LA? I mean, it's like the weather's great. Like, what is yes. this? Like, I grew up in New yes. York City. People are eating outside in 50 degree weather. You know, like, oh, let's sit in the cafe and have a coffee. And then, like, in LA, like, well, there's no outdoor restaurants. My, my parents would call from New York, or my dad lives in New Hampshire. He's like, oh, but you guys are totally set because there's outdoor dining. I'm like, no, literally, restaurants don't have patios here. I'm like, what are you talking about? It's like, People don't eat outside in LA. Yeah. It's changed it should be a the little sidewalk. bit. It should, yes. it has. And for the, that's one of the nicer things that happened as a result of the pandemic. But I have said this, this has been part of my argument. It should be the sidewalk cafe capital of the United States. We don't have sidewalks because someone be? walks. But yeah. But yeah. And like, and also, <laughs> like, this is great. I'm going out to dinner in the pandemic and eating a parking lot. Like, this is fantastic. Like, I should be like $70 and this car's like parking on me, like blowing exhaust. Like, this is disgusting. But yeah. Yeah. yeah, like, yeah. I, it's really odd. And I feel like the use of outdoor space in LA is very strange and very limited and unimaginative aside from they're like, it's a park. Like, well, that's great. You know, and like the parks are beautiful. I live by Kenneth Hahn. I live by Park to Playa. I love it. But, you know, there should be a lot more outdoor space and a lot more civic outdoor space. And, you know, for, you know, I guess there's the Grand Park Project downtown is sort of one of the things they tried to do um, in my tenure here. But yeah, it's weird. It's a weird like city where everyone comes to the weather, but like no one's outside. Yeah. Well, I'm outside and you're yeah. outside. Yes, you're walking only, around two hours a day. Uh, totally. So let me ask you a little bit more about your pandemic experience because- hmm. It's a conversation I've had more than once with writers who sort of sheepishly admit that it was a fertile time for them creatively. I sort of had this experience where I think the elimination of options might have helped me focus or something. Like Mm -hmm. I got to 
you know, there weren't as many things pulling on me as how it felt. It was like, okay, we're just going to be home and the kids are going to be in school. And obviously there's stuff to do there, but like, otherwise we're not going out, you know, like was, was it, I mean, you said you had like an hour or an hour and a half a day, so you didn't have a ton of time to work, but you did get a book done. Yeah, no, it wasn't my favorite. I did not have a great creative pandemic. And, you know, I, uh, I don't really know how to talk about this uh, sensitively. I wound up doing a lot of childcare <laughs> and um, it was difficult. I enjoyed certain aspects of the pandemic. Like I got to see my child go to kindergarten and I did kindergarten with her and my math skills actually got better. And I, I really <laughs> feel like I'm very privileged in the sense that I was able to participate fully in her education. And she's very privileged that I was able to do that too. And, you know, we fully did school and uh, we did extra stuff, but that's what I did mostly. And I wrote this book in 500 word increments later on in the pandemic. Why would, I guess I didn't get to exercise then. Oh yeah, I would ride the, I, yeah, at that point I stopped walking for a bit and was exercising at home, which is so depressing. The idea of exercising in my house, like I, I, I can't, I gave away my spin bike. I couldn't like, I, you know, I, I wonder how many Pelotons are like in the you know, sort of Peloton graveyard. Um, Landfill. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> right. like, so it was, it was interesting. I think it's changed me as a writer permanently for the better which is I'm much less precious about my time. And I think I'm much more, much more, what's it called? Uh, um, um, when you're efficient. Um, because I, I'm like, you know, I don't beat myself up. I, I, if I have to write 500 words a day and that's it, the book is going to get done. And I would prefer to write a thousand words a day, but sometimes I don't have the bandwidth or sometimes I don't have the time, but something just being like, I'm going to write 500 and that is such a low amount of work. It's nothing. And the book is going to get done. And I'm very, I know what those words are going to be. And I know what I'm doing each day when I sit down, as opposed to sitting there and be like, oh shit, I got like five hours. Like I got to do something, you know? And I think that maybe I will, I, I haven't started writing a new book. I've written a short story that I was like, well, it's shorter. I can write 300 words a day. <laughs> but but um, I think that, you know, maybe that's how I'm going to write going forward. I don't have to like, apply to McDowell and have like two months to, or a month to sit there and write, you know, I can do it more efficiently and more thoughtfully and more sort of, uh, not respectfully, what's it called? Appreciatively. Like I really appreciate having the time to work. I don't want yeah. too much of it anymore though. No, I do. I do want a lot of it, but sometimes too much is a little stressful. Yeah. Well, too much. Sometimes you can be less efficient. Yeah, exactly. You get less done. It, yeah. And like, listen, what I've been telling myself anyway, because I have very limited pockets of time to write and I'm even less ambitious than you are. I'm like a page a day. Well, that's like if 500 just, words, like a page and a half. Yeah. Something like that. Yeah. yeah. But just, yeah, maybe similar, but like, I feel like 300 is a page, but yeah. especially since I'm working in this kind of, what's the word for it? Like fragmentary style. Mm -hmm. So a page. Hey, that works like great. Yeah. <laughs> you get a page pretty quickly. But the point is that if you work for 400 days or 300 days, you're going to have a book. Absolutely. And like, you know, I've always, yeah, I mean, if it's really, it's really about the writing and if you're really focused on those three to 500 words, you're going to do a good job with them. And I also think that I'm sort of 
excited to get back to it because I couldn't do as what I would often do is I would write and then before bed go back and you know look at it and sort of my brain was looser probably because I was drinking (laughs) and then I was I would like write 200 words so I'd almost like write another 50% of my you know output for the day and yeah, I just feel like really proud of it. And I felt like it felt special to me to be able to do that. And I, yeah. But to the, do what? To, to do be, what? To get, do anything, you know, to get it, to get those words. Those words really meant something to me. They, I didn't take them for granted. I didn't take the, at, at, like the opportunity to write for granted. Like I got to write my 400 words or 500, 600. The thing I didn't get to do during the pandemic was to really revise or read the book and take it as a whole. And that really happened. And then I went through, I got divorced. I went through a whole bunch of stuff and like my life went super crazy afterwards. And I remember the first time I sat down and read this book, I was like, Whoa, that's an angry book. Where'd that come from? <laughs> like, And then I was like, Oh, I know, but <laughs> that was a bad pandemic for me. I mean, in certain aspects, but that was the one thing that had to go by the wayside. I had to work, like I had to go forward. I couldn't like go back and check it all out. Okay. Cause yeah, I'm, I'm always curious how writers work. There's like this old I forget. It was like an essay or a speech Kurt Vonnegut used to give where he sort of bifurcated writers into two categories. And I'm forgetting what he called them, but it was like something goofy, like bangers and mashers. And like oh, wow. one, one kind of writer like writes the sloppy first draft and like gets it out and then mm-hmm. revises their way to the finished right. product. And then there's another kind of writer, and this is the camp I'm in, that works really slowly, but gets... Like when they're done with a draft, it's pretty much the book. I'm is pretty, pretty much, much done. I'm pretty much that way, at least in the actual prose writing part. I mean, there might be like plot issues or whatever, but like the writing's good. Like, I mean, that's my thing. I write slowly and I write cleanly. And I do go back as I'm writing. I don't read it through, but I'll go back to the couple of days before and I'll I work on that. So I'm combing it through as I'm going. But yeah, it might I will need to fix plot or structure, not structure, plot, but the writing is fine. It's not about the writing. That the revision okay. is not about the writing for me. Well, this is a wonderfully plotted book. I'm glad you mentioned that because I, I really, like as I was reading, and this is the I think the case with every book that is well plotted. Like my admiration for it kind of escalated as I went because I was like, oh, like how is she going to land this plane? Mm-hmm. And like, wow, oh, this is coming together with this, and you can start to see, but I'm still not sure. And then the ending is satisfying and like very well done. Thank you. And yet I remember earlier in the conversation, you said that the end of the book began as a prologue that you had written. And I think that this is useful to discuss because I think a lot of writers might think of working on a novel and feeling like maybe there's something wrong with them if the process is messy. But like, hell, you wrote you had it so backwards, you thought the the end was the beginning and eventually got to the point where you realized that the beginning was the end (laughs) yeah i mean i knew it was a prologue but it was in a circle back to that so like i was i wrote the last part then i was like i want to figure out how these women get to this point and then i was like well actually the book is just getting them to the point so it should probably come at the end like but there's a hint of it in the beginning what happens i that's all i knew i knew that i wanted this sort of standoff on western that's you know not giving anything away i wanted this sort of wild west standoff on western and then i knew that these women were going to be in prison and then I had to figure out how to get them there. And I just had a few, few ideas, <laughs> um, not a lot, but it doesn't have like, like, well, there's only a few twists and turns in the book. So I thought, you know, the plotting of it was how do we get them to this point? Like what would, 
what would it take for these two women to wind up in that situation? And that was the question I kept asking myself. And you mentioned Western. Mm-hmm. This book is ca- is characterized as like a contemporary Western. Yeah. Uh, I've seen in mm-hmm. some reviews, maybe even in the jacket copy. It's on the jacket. And I'm wondering how explicit this was in terms of your intent. Like, were you trying to operate inside that genre? Were you like, I'm going to write a Western, but it's going to be a crime novel? Yes. And did you explore, did you study, did you like undertake a careful study of the genre of like the Westerns, like like old Clint Eastwood movies or something to try to figure no. out certain tropes that you could then twist or anything like that? No, I didn't watch movies. I read books. Um, so yeah, I wanted to write a Western. Like I sort of wanted to write a female Blood Meridian, but it sort of turned into a female No Country for Old Men, which is a Western. But like one of the things I'm sort of always fascinated by, by Cormac McCarthy's work is how much of it is actually contemporary. Like that book is set like, relatively recently, but we think of No Country for Old Men. When I think about it, I think about something that was set a really long time ago, but it's not. It's set maybe the 80s. I wanted to write a Western in that sort of sense, a Western that is thematically Western, but not locationally or, um, you know, with cows. Like the idea of a Western, like, you know, vendettas and violence and um kangaroo court and you know so i read um i read a ton of books i read the ones that really influenced this were um uh the oxbow incident and butcher's crossing uh, and then of course no country for old men but it is a western in the sense that it's two people pitted on a course of destruction and westerns are crime novels you know like El- just ask elmore leonard who wrote western crime novels or westerns that i guess people called crime novels so yeah and then i read a lot of those kind of you know silly like louis l'amour oh my god i probably shouldn't say that but like stuff like that which is fun and it's fun to like the overblown style and case sort of talk case who sort of narrates it talks a little bit like that you know Um, yeah where did case where did case come from i'm curious because that's a character who's sort of way out there and you're kind of writing into Mm -hmm. a pretty what's the word for it a little bit crazy like there's a little bit of like where like is she all there like it's hard to know yeah she's all there uh so she came later she came later when I decided I put the prologue at the end. We all worked towards, so it works towards that moment. But I realized I wanted to see part of the prologue in the beginning. And it meant I had to have another character telling the story a little bit. And then my editor, Daphne Durham, and I, she was like, it would be kind of cool if you had like a real Western gather around the campfire narration. And um, so I had been listening to this podcast, which I cannot remember the name of to save my life. And I really need to go look it up because I keep talking about it. Um, It's a BBC Canada or whatever the public radio station in Canada is podcast about incarcerated women. And there was, is that where I got it from? Or maybe it was from a book. I think it was there. Uh, I read a lot of books about incarcerated women too. And I just remember there was a woman who had um, beaten somebody up in a blind fury and didn't remember it. And I was like, well, what does that mean for her guilt and her, um, you know, her, uh, you know, redemption or her feelings of getting, you know, making it up because she just remembered doing it. And like, so I, that's where case came from listening and reading a little bit more about women in prison. And then I needed someone to tell the story and I needed to ground it because like Dios and Florida are really not grounded characters. So I just needed someone from the outside who could like shine a light and sort of put it all in perspective. Yeah. It's like, you, it's like utilitarian almost. Yeah. It's interesting how these creative decisions originate and a character is like wildly inventive. Like what's the word? 
like case to me just seems like wow like you you can't know a case in your life i would be surprised if you did maybe you do but like i just feel like wow she really built this character from the ground up i don't think i know the reason for (laughs) yeah i don't think i know one either but i feel like it's interesting how it can be done Mm -hmm. primarily just out of story need and suddenly this character emerges you know Mm -hmm. absolutely so did like in terms of process like process questions from book to book everyone is like a special snowflake right Mm -hmm. each book is different but there must be some common threads. I guess the pandemic sort of disabused you of this notion that you need to have like an eight hour day to work or you need to get Thank a thousand God. words a day. Yeah. yeah. But is there, like you, you seem like you're a word count person. Do you work most days? Do you have a schedule? Are you just getting it in pockets know. of time when you can? I mean, they're so different, these books. Like I, you know, I don't really remember writing these women. I can't remember why I don't remember it, but I don't remember ever writing that book. And I kind of sometimes block it out. I think they're all different. And I think um, this is going to be a really new experience for me, the book that I plan, like when I write a new book, because I now have half custody of my kids. So ostensibly I have three days and there's no one in my house and I should be incredibly productive, but I'm always like, maybe I'll sleep. Like, you know, she's not here. I'm like, ooh, <laughs> maybe i'll have people over and hang out and like they can smoke cigarettes in my house and i can watch jealously no i'm kidding i like (laughs) all the things you should not be doing right yeah um but that actually doesn't happen but um (laughs) yet I don't know. There's still time. There's still time. There's tomorrow. No, I'm just kidding. I I don't know. I think it's different. I think that you know my my process is more like I think of a book as a in blocks and pieces. So like I have the first like let's I have a somewhat of an idea for this new book and I have the first blocks of it. I will I will say okay I need three months to write those blocks and then we're gonna see what's going on. But I think and I think most of my books are structured that way. Like we like I knew the story of this book until they get released from prison. That's all I knew. I was like, that's where we're going to go. And that's the block. And then I have to figure out the next block. But I sort of knew the ending with these women. I knew that I wanted to write in these, the five characters and I knew they were going to like stack up, but I think it's just different and where you are in your life. Cause I now have a totally different life. My kid is growing up. She is eight years old. She will be nine by the time I'm writing. She's at school. She's at after school activities at sports. So I do have a long, longer period to write. And my life has changed dramatically. Like, you know, I live alone. Um, my concerns are slightly different. So who knows? I don't know. Get back to me next year. Okay. <laughs> and the, mention earlier of no country mm-hmm. that's a very cinematic novel it was obviously made into a great movie the one best picture yeah and when i read that novel what occurs to me is how one for one in such a strange way i mean it's all, almost uncanny how much of the movie is right there on the page like it's so because vividly he wrote it as a screenplay first and then turned it into a novel did he really yes Ah, well, that makes a lot of sense because I'm like, damn, this thing is just perfect. Like, yeah, the dialogue is exactly from his original screenplay. Okay, okay. But then well, the Coen brothers kinda... changed it a little bit. They made it even better as a screenplay. But um, yes, it was initially a screenplay. That's why it's so sparse. Okay, well, it's great. And it's, yeah. you know, I can imagine why the Coen brothers wanted to buy up the rights. It's oh, like, wow, sure. we've got a great movie here. Mm-hmm. But I have to say too, as I was reading Sing Her Down, <laughs> I was sort of like quietly casting it in my mm. 
head. I'm wondering if you have for this book or other books like film and television projects, you obviously live here in Los Angeles. Is there any like adaptation stuff happening? Is that something you're interested in? I am personally the not the least bit interested in adapting my own work. That's someone else's job. I'm not vain enough to imagine that I would do that properly. But yeah, there. Um, These Women is under option for the second time. Uh, it got pretty close to becoming a TV show, but you know, close only counts in something like horseshoes, but it doesn't even count horseshoes there. and hand grenades. Hand grenades, yeah, but doesn't really even count in horseshoes. I mean, <laughs> like close counts, but like on the thing is better, right? right. But now it's back under option and Singer Down just got sent out last week. You know, there's the writer's strike. And so there's all this oh, like right. back and forth, like it's a great time to sell. It's a terrible time, you know? So we're going to see, um, you know, I think it'd make a great movie. I mean, it is, it is written to reflect you No know, Country for Old Men. It is very much inspired by that. Not like I read that and recopied it, but as I was writing it, I was like, oh, this is really similar. Just structurally, you know, with the interstitial cases sort of talking like um, the deputy in um, No Country. Anyway, so whose who's wife's name is Loretta, which is my daughter's name, which is kind of cool. But so, yeah, I think it would make a great movie. But then again, I am a writer and I don't, I'm not a TV or studio or film exec. So, yeah. Okay. Yeah. And then one other question about craft you just mentioned these blocks, like mm-hmm. how you imagine your novels and blue. Do you always do that? You always think like there's a block, like how many, is there a, a, a is there a defined number of blocks per novel or no. is it? No. No, it comes but, from going to, I went to a low residency MFA program and we had to like write every month, like um, 30 to 40, like 20 to 30 pages. And so it felt, and I was writing a novel and I felt like you couldn't just like at the end of 30 pages, if the chapter wasn't done, send it to them. I felt like I had to be a full little section. So I think I still create these little sections in my head of when things are done. And it's funny when I sold my novel Visitation Street, my editor at the time asked me why every chapter was exactly the same length. I'm like, well, because I wrote it for grad school. And like, they were all the same length because it was a homework assignment. Right. Oh, that makes sense. Yeah, that makes, and I, I can see how like that could be like a repeating pattern or something yeah. to sort of carry forward. It's, it's just the, the way I think way of getting work. my work done. No, it's the way I think of getting my work done. So yeah, it works. Blocks. Blocks. Okay. So, and any hints on what's next? Do you have another book? Well, Does I was good. Like you're working it, on it. One? Just changed. Um, I was going to write a novella, but that turned out not to work out for reasons that are fine. Um, I think I might write one more Los Angeles novel, and this one is not going to be personally dark but i think it might be apocalyptically dark we're going to try dark in landscape not dark in humanity well okay i know well, I'll, I'll have to read i'll have to i'll have to read that one and be totally freaked out all over again about where i live exactly that that will be <laughs> the <you>. point <laughs> thank you for ruining my hometown i appreciate oh, it I, this is exactly what i planned that you know what you've given me uh the permission to write it because that's exactly what i want to do <laughs> that is right. the goal like literally that is it okay and do you have love for los angeles i you love los angeles it. you live yeah. here yeah totally yeah so do i yeah. Yeah. it's like we say everyone bitches about it but i have a lot of love for it i'm too. not moving gr- yeah yeah me yeah. neither so yeah. i know you got to get going you've got a sick child home from yes, school and I all do. the rest so Aww. i'm going to let you go Thank it is you. wonderful to talk with you i appreciate you making the time congratulations on sing her down i wish you well with it and i wish you well with all that you have going. Thank you so much. It's always such a pleasure to do your podcast. All right, you guys, there we go. That's the conversation with Ivy Pakoda. What do you think? Her new novel is called Sing Her Down. 
It is available now from MCD Books. It publishes this week. You can find Ivy on the internet at ivypakoda.com. She's on social media, Facebook, Instagram. Her Twitter handle is at Ivy Pakoda. One more time, the novel is called Sing Her Down. Available from MCD Books. Go get your copy immediately. The Other People Podcast is available wherever podcasts are available. Don't forget to subscribe. You can watch the show on the Other People YouTube channel. Subscribe to the channel. It's free. The show, the entire archive, is made available free of charge. More than 830 episodes and counting. All of it is available to listeners without a paywall. So if you like this show, if you had a good experience, if you listen regularly, if you get something from it, I hope you will consider supporting this podcast over at patreon.com slash otherpplpod. That's patreon, P-A-T-R-E-O-N dot com slash otherpplpod. Help keep this program rolling and support the work that I do each and every week. If you want to get another people t-shirt, you can do that at the other people website, otherppl.com. If you want to sign up for my free once a week email newsletter, you can do that at bradlisty.com or otherppl.com. If you would be so kind, I would appreciate it if you would rate and review this podcast wherever you listen, give it a rating, write a little review. If that's an option, it helps new listeners find the show. If you have feedback for me, the email address is letters at otherppl.com. And finally, I have a novel out. It's my latest novel. It's called Be Brief and Tell Them Everything. It just turned one year old on May 10th. It is available in trade paperback, ebook, and audiobook editions. I narrate the audiobook. It's a work of autofiction. It is intimate. It is hopefully funny. It's dark. It's all of that stuff. It's called Be Brief and Tell Them Everything if you would like to read it. So coming up next on The Other People Show, a new Craftwork episode. I will be in conversation with author and story expert John Truby. He has a new book out called The Anatomy of Genres, and he and I are going to be talking at length about how the horror genre works. So horror fiction, horror movies, the stories that scare us. My conversation with John Truby is coming up on Wednesday, so stay tuned.